Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hi everyone, Ashley here. I'm working on putting a few new shows together now, and while I do that, I'm re-releasing one of my favorites from the past. I first released this show just after Easter and Passover three years ago. In it, I talked to three women faith leaders, one Jewish, two Christian. There's so much these women have in common with the rest of us who do not work in faith roles, but there are a few unique situations as well. And a quick note on my use of the term dog collar for the clerical collar that vicars and ministers wear. My husband told me I should have used the more formal clerical collar. But honestly, growing up in England, I had never heard that term that I remember. I only ever heard people talking about dog collars, including my uncle, who was himself an archdeacon. I'll give you a quick update about all three women at the end. But now, here's the show. Welcome to The Broad Experience, the show about women, the workplace and success. I'm Ashley Miltite. This time on the show, what does it mean to be a woman in a religious role? As soon as I, I sort of heard the criticism of this young female rabbi, the first thing that I thought of was, I don't think that that would be necessarily the way that people addressed a male counterpart. How to react when people regard your pastoral body as public possession. I was walking across the sanctuary, and I heard this young woman, a congregant, call out from across the sanctuary, those jeans make your butt look great. And the perils of preaching when female. When I want to make eye contact across the room and connect with people, I find myself looking at men and older men as if I need them to approve of what I'm saying. Coming up, in the wake of Easter and Passover, three women share their experiences of religious life. None of the women on today's show imagined they'd end up where they are now. My first guest is Rabbi Danielle Lashaw. About 20 years ago, she was a student at university in Arizona, and her campus rabbi and his wife suggested she might want to become a rabbi when she grew up. Today, she's executive director of Hillel, the Jewish campus organization at Ohio University in Athens, Ohio. Rabbi Danielle studied at rabbinical school in Philadelphia. Back then, the thought of being any kind of leader was still intimidating, and the years of study loomed ahead. So was there a moment when she knew this was the right path? There were more moments of of doubt. There were more moments where I wondered if this was the right choice. You know, year three, year four, you know, you're sort of slogging through it all and you think, when is this ever going to end? Am I really good at this? Can I actually lead a community? You know, am I providing a source of comfort or strength to people in need? Am I serving as a role model? You know, do I have what it takes, essentially, uh, I think are, are sort of those moments, those questions that you ask yourself in the dark moments of rabbinical school. And I know that I'm not alone in having experienced that. 
And she says the whole being a woman thing, it hasn't been a problem in her work. She's part of Judaism's Reconstructionist movement. It's been ordaining women rabbis since the 70s. I wouldn't say that gender has never been an issue through my career as a rabbi. But overwhelmingly, it hasn't been. I haven't had struggles that I feel acutely because I am a woman. Um, I have had struggles, professional struggles and challenges, for sure. Um, But I, I wouldn't necessarily say that they are because I am a woman or were any, well, there are moments when I think that they were, perhaps my struggle was a little bit greater because I was a woman. But no, I'm not, I, I just haven't, I haven't had those experiences. Still, she says there is one area where she is quite conscious of her gender, and that is appearance and demeanor. She says women rabbis have to be more conscious of how they carry themselves than male rabbis. She says, as a woman, you can't appear too passionate. You can't walk around too blissed out on God, as she put it. You have to keep those instincts in check. So while I might want to be an incredibly charismatic, um, spiritually inspiring rabbi, I also know that I have to balance that with being very organized and very professional and well put together and that one can't supersede the other. Whereas I do think, and I have witnessed, that there are men in the rabbinate in our field who don't necessarily need to be as concerned with issues of professionalism Um, issues of presenting themselves in particular ways. I think that, like in most circumstances of male privilege, there is a pass. She had an example of someone she knows who isn't getting a pass. I was overhearing a conversation about uh, a young female rabbi that had stepped into a synagogue community, very excited, very enthusiastic, eager to change, eager to inspire, and in, she wanted to inspire people in prayer and in worship and in, you know, sort of a very high, elevated spiritual experience. She really, you know, I've spoken to her. I can tell from her social media posts, from everything that she's trying to do to change and excite a community. And people are very quick to criticize her and say things like, she's trying too hard and she needs to calm down and this isn't her place, and she's moving too quickly to change the dynamic of the community. And as soon as I I sort of heard what, you know, the criticism of this young female rabbi, the first thing that I thought of was, I don't think that that would be necessarily the way that people addressed a male counterpart. I, I don't think that if a man had come in, a young male rabbi had come into that community with the same energy and the same enthusiasm and the sort of same inspiration for his, himself and his community that he would be met with quite the same resistance. Um, and so I think maybe there's this expectation that we take it slow and we're really methodical and um, we think through everything really carefully before we make any changes in a community or in a style of worship. And I think that men in their, you know, spiritual experiences and fervor and inspiration and wanting to be 
a light to other people are allowed to do that more easily and more readily. And she says other things are a bit easier for male rabbis too. One of those things, aging. As female rabbis get older, their opportunities for employment diminish, which is not the case for male rabbis. And so I definitely think about that. And I know that other female rabbis are thinking about that as well, that we may not be as employable as we get older, which is a trend in general for women. So now, what does it look like also for female rabbis, um, while our male counterparts are able to sort of be seen as the wise old sage who goes into, you know, their 70s and 80s and is still hireable and welcome to serve. She doesn't think this stuff gets talked about much in Jewish communities. It wasn't something that was discussed when she was at rabbinical school either. She says she knows it's hard to envisage the future. Or even, you know, of course, it's hard when you're in your 30s to think about life in your 70s. But should rabbinical associations have conversations now with their membership as people age and and what do career choices look like? And how can you remain vital to a community? I'm not sure those conversations are even happening. So, yeah, I would think that, you know, issues of aging and gender and affect and presentation are things that we need to talk a little bit more about so that we can also just be effective, more effective leaders of, the, of our communities. She aspires to be a wise old sage herself. Rebecca Anderson comes from a different religious tradition, one that was less accepting of women leaders than Rabbi Danielle's. My dad was and is a pastor. Now he's a pastor in the United Methodist Church, which, um, you know, is a mainline Protestant denomination. But we grew up in what a lot of people would define as fundamentalist or evangelical churches. And I loved it. You know, I, I always loved church and sort of the stuff of church, which I would call like potlucks and singing with people. But starting really early, that theology did not jive with me. Like when I probably when I was 12 or 13, I started to have questions about that more conservative theology. So she slipped into adult life with what she says was a toehold in church. She graduated from college and she spent her 20s doing a bunch of different things. She worked in theatre. She worked on a farm. She did some stand up comedy. She ran an after school program at a Jewish day school. A friend who was not religious, who I didn't think I'd talked that much about, my faith with said to me, if I were someone like you, I would check out this church. And she had all the details wrong, but I went and it was this, um, I was like in for a penny, in for a pound. Like I went on a mother's day, they acknowledged single people in their welcome. They acknowledged people who want to be mothers, but aren't. They acknowledged that motherhood, being the daughter of a mother can be difficult. Like they named all these things that I'd never heard named in church. The music was awesome. The preaching was smart and creative. There was an attention to aesthetic detail that I had not experienced in my Calvinist upbringing. And the way I talk about it is I heard these, I heard these stories, or I heard the faith like in a vernacular that I could understand. So I, I started going to that church like right away. I went one Sunday and then just kept going. The pastors there were a married couple. The husband was associate pastor. His wife was head pastor. So I'm kind of sitting in the pews there and watching her do her thing, listening to another like beautiful sermon. And, you know, as you heard, my 20s were just to say that they were eclectic is an understatement. And I didn't have a career path. I felt like I was all over the map. I felt like 
I hadn't really started things. I didn't do all those things you're supposed to do. I didn't get my financial house in order. I didn't start my career. I didn't get a partner. All these things. And like everything felt disconnected. And I'm watching this woman do her thing. And I thought, oh, oh, this is my skill set. Like this is what all this adds up to, this sort of winding path. And now I sort of feel like it's the only thing I can do. You know, I have a lot of skills, but this is, this is a job that allows me to do so much of what I love, whether it's, you know, gardening or hanging out with kids or public speaking or teaching music or making meals or um, being involved in social justice. I mean, I just think like, yeah, if somebody wants to show me another job where I can do all that, great. But for now, this seems like it. That couple had been to the University of Chicago Divinity School, and Rebecca ended up following in their footsteps. Afterwards, she worked at a small Methodist church in Chicago. Then she got a job in the suburbs at an interdenominational church. She says one of the things she's found interesting and sometimes challenging about her role is the attitude other people have to her body. She says it's an ongoing topic of discussion among her and her female colleagues. There's this way where people have congregants, I should say, people in the in the congregation, just feel free to talk about our bodies in this way. And, and that's that's too sweeping a statement, but I'll say what I mean. I mean, I've had, at my previous church, I remember like walking across the sanctuary. It was a pretty casual place, so I was, I was wearing like jeans or something. I know I was wearing jeans because I was walking across the sanctuary and I heard this young woman, a congregant, call out from across the sanctuary, those jeans make your butt look great. And I was like, uh, uh, good, like I'm so <laughs> great. But also, I guess people talk that way to each other. Part of it was the nature of that church, that it was very casual. Um, but it did strike me as um, something that a mentor had said to me a couple of years earlier. He was my teaching pastor. He said, oh, you have to deal with body and dress in a way that I will never understand in this job. You know, we were talking about the way people commented on his looks. He's a very nice-looking guy. But he said, I, don't, I cannot begin to understand the way people talk about your body and feel that they have a right to. One thing I experience here, this is an older congregation, and on more than one occasion I've had some very lovely older guy, I'm talking about like octogenarians, say, we never get to see you with your hair down. And I think, get to? Get to? Like, what, what do you mean? I didn't, it wasn't in the job description. Like... I think my hair down looks sloppy when I wear a robe, you know, so I always wear it up at church. And talking of robes, when Rebecca first arrived at this church, she says she resisted wearing the traditional minister's robe. She told a female mentor of her she thought the congregation should get used to seeing a regular female body in the pulpit. She didn't want to be swathed in a billowing garment, but her mentor pushed back. She convinced me so thoroughly when she said, your people are used to seeing women in everyday clothes. What they are not used to seeing is women in the authority of the robe. You need to wear it because it is your authority in this position. And that is a symbol in their culture, like the culture of this church, not the culture of this community. That is a symbol in their culture of authority. And so it's important for them to see you in that robe. Done. She's been happily robed ever since. Her divinity school class was mostly male, especially by the time they all graduated. But given women have made up the bulk of believers for centuries, why aren't there more women pastors? I wondered, is the authority of the office unattractive? That's a question I have about myself in general, professionally, is whether I am willing 
to put myself out for what I have long called the big girl job. And for me, that's about owning my own authority as an adult, as a professional, as a pretty skilled pastor. Um, I bring a lot of skills to the job. And I think, I think there have been a lot of times in my life when I have been reluctant to own that authority. And I'm still not entirely sure what that's about. So if it's true for me, and I've managed to kind of blow past that and do what I'm called to in this work, in this job, I would assume that, yes, it's true for other people as well. For her, that big girl job is leading a church. She says she knows she's meant to do that. But like a lot of us, she wishes someone would just pick her to do that job. What intimidates her is the hoops you have to jump through, the interviews. She says she knows she's undermined herself in interviews before. Then there's becoming more of an expert on church finances, which any church leader needs to be. And she says some of it comes down to not wanting to pretend to be someone she's not to get that job. She's still grappling with it all. I asked what her parents think of her career now, and she says they're really proud of her, despite their different politics and different theologies. Sometimes her dad asks her for advice. She says she's conducted some tough funerals, and she finds inspiration and comfort in the Book of Common Prayer. My dad knew that I had done at least one extremely difficult, gigantic funeral. And when it came time for him to do a funeral for someone who he did not know who had committed suicide, he got in touch with me to say, listen, I know you did this service. What kind of resources do you have? Because I am just at a loss. You know, my dad's been pastoring for, man, like 30 plus years. So it's not like he's short on experience or know-how, but I never expected to be able to offer my father resources to very practically help him do his job. So that's been an interesting dynamic. And I I find it very, you know, it's mutual. So my, my folks are over the moon. Rebecca Anderson. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass? So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Appearance came up in these interviews a lot more than I expected it to. And before I even began the next interview at St. James's Episcopal Church in Manhattan, I found the Reverend Adrian Danhauser looking at a website called Beauty Tips for Ministers. And I will come out and say it. She was fashionably dressed in black pedal pusher pants or trousers, short sleeve black top with dog collar, and she had a colourful floral design shawl thrown around her shoulders. Her hair was in a ponytail. This was no dowdy church lady. She was reading a British article about appropriate style for Lady Vickers. A British. Oh, look at this. The the Vicar wears Prada. The Vicar wears Prada. And I think this article, you know, she's calling someone out saying this is what not to do. Uh, I don't know who this priest is. But the point is that, you know, it's possible to look too sexy. Who knew? When she was younger, Adrian wanted to be a psychologist or psychiatrist. She thought she'd use Christianity a lot in her work. Okay, so you knew you were not somebody who came to this late. You were very interested in in leading a Christian life and doing that through your work when you were 18. 
Yes, that, that was the idea at the time. Then I got a, a C-plus in freshman chemistry. <laughs> I thought, well, maybe I, I didn't need to be an MD. Maybe psychology was still up for grabs. Uh, but the, the answer to your question, under, underlying question, is yes. Like, I, I grew up with my faith being of in central importance to me. I never thought I would be an ordained minister, I grew up in a very fundamentalist, conservative Christian tradition, a Southern Baptist. And the, the theology, you know, sometimes my, my head and my heart did not meet. Uh, and, I, and I struggled a little bit, but the, the Holy Spirit was always very real for me. And the experience of, of Jesus um, and the, the joy of the Lord, all those things were dear to my heart. Uh, and that's, you know, what has seen me through. Still, after college, she was far from pursuing her current career. She ended up going to law school in her 20s. And I actually really enjoyed law school. I love all kinds of school. And I enjoyed practicing law. I did a little too much of it. You know, I was at a Wall Street firm as a junior associate, uh, slogging through long hours. But I have to say, I was probably one of the happiest people in my department. Wow. And you don't hear that all that often from from overworked associates. Yeah. And, and maybe that has to do with disposition and and faith and the rest of my, my personal life being pretty strong. I have a wonderful husband, incredibly supportive. But something interesting, when I let everyone know that I was going to be leaving my firm and, and going to seminary, I got several other associates saying, I'm so jealous. I wish I knew what I wanted to do. But she says it's tough for most people to drop that golden handshake. These big law firms pay first-year associates as much as $160,000 a year. Adrian stayed until she'd paid off her law school loans and saved up enough to go to Yale Divinity School. Adrian's a bit of an outlier in the Episcopal Church. When you look at the numbers, almost as many women as men are ordained these days, so no problems with taking on authority here, apparently. But Adrian's in her 30s. That makes her a lot younger than most career changers who become Episcopal priests in their late 40s, 50s or older, and many priests being ordained today are in that age group. In the Church of England, it's the same story. The clergy is still mostly male, but so many women are being ordained, the numbers will probably tip in the future. Both churches now ordain female bishops, and both churches are concerned about their congregations. They're ageing fast. After she graduated from Divinity School, Adrian began a two-year fellowship at St. James's on Madison Avenue. Yeah, but this, this is a very vital, vibrant, healthy church um, with a lot of children and families and a lot of young adults. Uh, which goes against that that trend of a graying congregation. So it's also another wonderful place to to start my ordained ministry. Adrian's own boss, the rector of St. James's, is a woman. Adrian says she's an inspiring example. Do you think it's easier to be a woman in leadership in the church than it is at a big Wall Street law firm? I'm not sure. The church is still... Uh, running behind. Uh, there are plenty of folks out there who don't want to have a woman in a position of high 
authority. I will say that, you know, part of just on my, my experience, I'm not getting paid anything like I was, and I'm not going to work anywhere close to how hard I was working. I mean, you know, generally it's about 50 hours a week, and that's perfect. You know, if you have someone die or in crisis, it, it might be more. And then you'll have some time in the summer when it's slow. But I think the, the balance is easier to strike, especially as a parent. She and her husband have a little girl who's six. What you were talking about to do with authority, and there are still people who don't want to see women in, a, in that role. Do you feel more, where do you feel you had the most power and by power, I mean mm-hmm. what it Healthy really means, exercise. which is the ability to uh, do things, the ability to make things happen here or mm-hmm. at the firm. I mean, I know you were lowered, you know, yeah. you were still on your way up at the firm, so it's a bit different. But One place where I have found authority, I guess you would say, is around mission work and in particular human trafficking. I chair a task force against human trafficking for the Episcopal Diocese of New York. And, you know, this is a place where the the hierarchy and the, the structure of our church is very helpful because I can get out a message to thousands of Episcopalians to call their legislators in support of state legislation that ended up passing this past Monday. She says being there at the press conference with her dog collar on, yes, she felt authoritative. She knew she'd brought about some change for good, and it felt fantastic. But it hasn't always been easy. She's had her share of uncomfortable experiences. During her training, she worked at a hospital. I'll tell you the, the story. It still just makes my, my skin crawl. I was, um, I was serving as a hospital chaplain, and, you know, I... I don't strike folks as what they would expect, right? Lots of times they're expecting a, a middle-aged man who's white and uh, perhaps balding. <laughs> and so I was in the hospital. And this interaction took place in the hallway. A patient she knew was being pushed along on a stretcher. She stopped to say hello. And this man who was pushing it, you know, had like a quizzical look, like, who are you? I said, well, I'm a hospital chaplain. And he looked me over and said, wow, you're a shapely chaplain. And it was, you know, it was like instantaneous. I tried to diffuse the situation. And I said, well, we come in all shapes and sizes. And there was, you know, everybody does a little nervous laughter. And the encounter was over. And they had moved on down the hall. And I thought to myself, wow, um, what... um, a reaction if I had had, you know, maybe 10 seconds to think or an opportunity to go back and um, say something different, I wish I would. Uh, but I was, you know, I was certainly disappointed with him, but also, you know, just reflecting of um, how I've been conditioned to smooth things over. And there's something else she's noticed about her conditioning, her upbringing in the South as a woman, and the religion she was raised in, which doesn't ordain women. Something I found uh, when I would preach, and sometimes still even now, uh, when I want to make eye contact across the room and connect with people, I find myself looking at men and older men as if I need them to approve of what I'm saying. She has been working on that. 
Her fellowship at this church is coming to an end and she has a new position, a promotion. It's at a church in midtown Manhattan. She'll begin that job this summer. That's the broad experience for this time. I'll be posting some show notes and photos of my guests under this episode at thebroadexperience.com. Thanks so much to April Leslie. She conducted the interview with Rabbi Danielle LaShaw at the University of Ohio. Okay, so here I am again in 2018. Since those interviews three years ago, Danielle and Rebecca have switched jobs along with Adrian. Danielle is now senior educator with Hillel International, based in Pittsburgh. Rebecca is co-pastor at Gilead Church in Chicago. And Adrian is associate rector of the Church of the Incarnation in Manhattan. I'll link you to more information about each of them and photos of all three under this episode at thebroadexperience.com. I always love hearing from you, so feel free to get in touch with me via the website or on Twitter. I'm Ashley Milne-Tite, no hyphen. Thanks for listening. See you next time. This is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. The future isn't scary, not realizing its potential, however, could be. Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc.,